You are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation, a national nonprofit founded on the belief that every pregnancy deserves a happy ending. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider visiting StarLegacyFoundation.org to make a donation. Our guest for this episode is Heather Florescu. She's an OBGYN at Women's Gynecology and Childbirth Associates in Rochester, New York. Since attending the Star Legacy Foundation's Stillbirth Summit in the summer of 2019, Heather has been on a mission. She's been implementing the United Kingdom's Saving Babies Lives protocol in her practice and has had a very positive experience. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So my first question for you is, as an engaged member of the Star Legacy Foundation, I'm always curious to hear how people learn about us, especially people who are not from Minnesota or the Midwest. So how did you first hear about the Star Legacy Foundation and the Stillbirth Summit? So for my entire career, I've been very involved in the lost community in Rochester. I've always felt very comfortable with helping people through grief and kind of knew the right things to say. So I've always been very involved in the lost community and providing support for patients. Um, one of my patients who um, lost her child four years ago um, is actually one of the co-chairs for our local um, Star Legacy chapter. And she um, and the uh, and the chair of the um, chapter asked me to go to the Stillbirth Summit. And that was really probably the first I ever heard of Star Legacy. So you took a leap and you flew out to Minnesota for the Stillbirth Summit. Um, is, first of all, have you ever been to anything like this before? And, and second of all, what was your experience like? So I went in with a very different idea of what I was going to experience than what actually happened. And I think that really led to everything that's happened to me in the nine, ten months since then. Um, I thought I was going to a conference of OBGYNs like me, probably some midwives, of course, family medicine providers. And I was going to meet all these people like me who really enjoy grief counseling and really enjoy taking care of patients who've lost babies and being part of their lives and kind of following up with them. And I started kind of doing my Heather thing and I kind of went up and started shaking hands with people and saying, oh, I'm Dr. Heather Florescu. Who are you? And they would quickly use their first name and say, my name is Sarah and I'm here because I lost my daughter Jane last year. And I kind of started going through that, kind of looking for my peers, and it became quickly obvious to me that it was really not my peers who were at this conference, but actually nurses and a wide range of things, but a large percentage of bereaved um, families. And I think that really quickly shifted my, what am I going to get from this in terms of being like, why am I here? And is there something I'm going to learn that I can somehow bring back to make everybody care about this passion the way that I do. Um, I really think I was most impacted, of course, by Dr. Calderwood's um, speech during it because I really was not prepared to know that there was anything that could be done to prevent stillbirth. And I really kind of followed the myth that um, low-risk patients who had stillborn babies there was absolutely nothing that could be done. So that was, I think, the thing that I took away by far the most from the conference. I really enjoyed all the lectures and the learning that I did and um, took away something from everything. But I think Dr. Calderwood's, um, you know, kind of speech is something that I will look back in my career 30 and 40 years from now and say this was the turning point in my life. 
let's get into a little more detail on that. I'm very curious because you're a highly trained OB who has gone through lots of education and training, and you're learning information at this stillbirth summit for the first time that you've never learned before. So how was the information you heard specifically from Dr. Calderwood different from what you've learned in your training and education prior to that? So um, what two of the things I talk a lot about now in this journey is the myths of what I thought before I went to the conference. And the two myths I really thought were we see a lot of when term stillbirth women appear that they actually – appear and sometimes they don't even present with decreased fetal movement. Sometimes they just present with their labor check. And then we would find that their baby was stillborn and we'd be like, when did you last feel the baby move? And they'd say maybe two, three, four days ago. And I remember being like, there's, they must've just been in denial. They must have just said, you know, I know something's wrong with my baby and I can't bring myself to come. But then I also thought about the fact that those women showed up and with a smile on their face thinking they were having a baby. So clearly they weren't in that much of denial. Um, I think I also kind of had this myth in my head that the patient who presented three, four or five times and always had reactive NSDs and reassuring biophysical profiles and the growth was normal and the fluid was normal, that they were also not preventable, these losses, if they showed up within 24, 46, you know, 48 hours, whatever it was. And I think this just shattered that for me. It made me realize that the patients who, you know, in the first example, probably didn't know that decreased field movement was a warning sign for anything because we didn't educate them. And then the second example actually showed me a lot that maybe those tests are not getting at the real crux of the issue, which is a decreased fetal movement. So it's one thing to go to a summit like this and learn a bunch of stuff and then just move on with your life, but you have brought it to your practice. And I'm curious, what are some of the changes that you have made so far in your practice and that you're advocating for? So we, I basically did as much as I could to follow the protocol because I knew if I was going to get even my wonderful partners to buy in, I knew I had to have something. I couldn't be like, I just made this up. So I kind of on the plane ride home from Minnesota started like furiously writing down stuff as it started to like kind of permeate in my head. Like, I can I do something with this? And I went to my partners and I said, I learned about this protocol and I'd like to try to implement it. And we really have implemented the vast majority of it in the practice. Um, I'm still kind of the lead person on this, but um, we kind of took all the four components. Um, the smoking, we, we have a really very low smoking rate in our practice, but we are making sure we're assessing it. And more importantly, I think because it's a big risk factor for stillbirth and a small baby, we are actually um, kind of you doing a chart review, which I'm mostly doing around the 32 week mark to make sure these women who are smoking and women with other risk factors for small babies are actually getting caught. Um, and then the next part, of course, is the education piece. And I'm really just making sure that our nurses and my partners and our um, APPs are all really educating patients about what fetal movement is and what we shouldn't be doing. And we're really kind of moving away from the kick counts and saying more that you should trust your baby and know your instincts and kind of say, you know what, something's not right. And I'm going to call and let my doctor know about it. And then, as I said, we've also implemented the part where we're kind of making sure we're not missing any growth-restricted babies, including the UK protocol that says that 
fundal height may not be accurate in a morbidly obese woman or in a woman who has a large fibroid, for example. So we're making sure that those women are getting growth scans. Um, and then the final piece of it, of course, is how do you treat a person when they call with this concern? And I think we've really implemented that to the fullest that you can. It's the hardest piece by far. Um, we created a flow sheet directly from the UK protocol. And when our patients call with decreased fetal movement or um, increased fetal movement of concern, we are creating a flow sheet that's very easily seen by anybody who looks in the chart. And the patient comes in and we're doing a non-stress test. And if they have risk factors for stillbirth, then we are doing an ultrasound per the protocol within 24 hours. Um, if the patient is not reassured, we're also getting an ultrasound. The vast majority of them will be. And then we are making sure that we're following through on it. And then the final piece, which um, doesn't come up too often, is the patient with the persistent decreased movement who's really worried about this recurrent fetal movement. And if they're more than 39 weeks, we have been inducing them. Um, and we, to this date, have probably done about 22 inductions for um, kind of the complaint of recurrent decreased fetal movement. Um, we've had two women who were so afraid of it, we actually asked a, a perinatologist and they were actually allowed us to do it before the 39-week part. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> that leads me to my next question, which is, how has it gone so far? And you've already alluded to the results a little bit, but d diving into that a little bit more, how has all of this been received by your colleagues and your patients? And what have the results been? So the patients, I think, have really well received it. Um, they, especially when I've been, you know, really trying to teach my partners, but also you know, myself and teaching our nurses to use the stillbirth word. They're handing out the star legacy cards and we're being much more open about that stillbirth still happens. And the patients are doing exactly as Lindsay suggested. They're not freaking out. They're not angry. I'm using a lot of the examples of once your baby's born, we talk about, you know, here's, you know, this baby that's born, let's do these things to prevent your baby from dying in its crib, which is incredibly terrifying to new parents, but we still do it because it's the right education to give them. And when I say that example to patients, they really start to kind of, you know, get it. And they really, we have not gotten a single call in nearly eight months from a patient saying, I cannot believe Dr. Florescu is introducing this scary thing into the practice. Like nobody's angry about it. Um, there are definitely a few patients who have had recurrent decreased fetal movement that they keep on calling about and we want to induce them and they've refused induction. Um, I think they are probably the ones who are not as worried about it as they're saying um, because I feel like if any mother is truly as worried as moms are with recurrent decreased fetal movement, they probably would be very you know, much on it. Interestingly, we kind of forced two of these two to actually be induced because we were so worried and both of them and their placentas had some very concerning findings. So um, I think, I don't know why they didn't want to do it, but everybody else, that's probably the, probably the only negative feedback is you get a couple of people who don't want to be induced, even when you explain the rationale. So, um, yes. Do you feel like the changes you've made have made a difference so far? I, it's one of those things I am so – it's so hard. I, I, I know that I am a better listener because of it. I think my staff has a better understanding of it. I think there are some confusions in how to manage the decreased fetal movement part, which we kind of just work through as a team. Um, the nurses kind of use me as the go-to person. And I think it's a really wonderful thing. I think the hard part is, and you know, until we get 
a broader amount of practices in the United States or in wherever doing this, we're not going to get any great data. So I can say, and with a knock on wood, we haven't had a single stillbirth in eight months, but I don't know that that's because of this or not, you know, and tomorrow we could have three, you know, so part of me wants to be very cautiously optimistic about the really great outcomes we've had in our pregnancies. But unfortunately, there's not enough time to know for sure that the implementation has made that difference. So thinking about other OBs who might hear this story and, and think, I wasn't trained this way, or this seems like way too much work to implement. What message would you have for OBs who haven't heard about the UK-Australia protocols and may be hesitant to learn about them or use them? I, I think it takes a leap of, I don't know if faith's the right word, but I had to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't doing this right. And I think providers of all types have trouble realizing that they were doing something wrong. And I think that's one of the things you have to do is you have to accept that that woman who came in for a labor check and her baby had died inside of her and she hadn't felt movement for three days. You may have been able to keep that from happening if you educated her. And that's like a lot to bear to realize that you weren't doing this right and that some of these babies may have been saved. But to me, the challenge is to say, okay, I I get that and I'm going to move forward and do this correctly. But I think we're very much limited because the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists has done absolutely nothing to address how do you manage decreased fetal movement complaints or how do you prevent low-risk stillbirth from happening. And until they really acknowledge this is a problem um, in the education of residents and how doctors are practicing, unfortunately, you're going to need people like me who just hear about this and become immediately passionate about making the world better and trying to prevent stillbirth. And I know that you were planning to attend the ACOG event this spring with the Star Legacy Foundation before it was canceled due to the state of the world we're in right now. But I'm curious, what were you envisioning your role to be and and how were you going to approach being at that event? Um, I think I was going to be my usual passionate self and any doctor who came to the table. I was going to very, you know, kind of kindly but bluntly say to them, we're not educating our patients right and we're looking at this wrong and we're looking wrong at the patient who doesn't feel moving for three days. They're not in denial. They're just undereducated. And we need to also look at the patient who has four NSTs in the days leading up to her um, stillborn baby that maybe we were looking at that all wrong too. And that the chief complaint of the decreased fetal movement may be the only piece that we get to know that this baby um, has its gas tank kind of running out. I use, I would use a lot the example that I use with patients, which I learned at the summit. I cannot remember who to attribute it to, um, that they said that, you know, a car with a low tank of gas, like 10 gallons left and, you know, 10 miles left in the tank, they're driving down the highway and they're still going 55 miles per hour in that car, even though that gas tank is almost out. And that's how they ascribed it that one of these lectures, the placenta and that maybe the low gas flight warning for a mother's pregnancy is only 
that decreased fetal movement. And again, the tests that you would look at, just like the car running 55 miles per hour, the fluid's still normal, the baby's growth's still normal, maybe even the Dopplers are normal, the biophysical profile is normal, because the gas tank isn't gone yet. And the only way we know that this baby is at risk is that decreased fetal movement complaint. And I think it just really requires you changing how you're thinking about this, but it's an easy change to make. And once you do, and once you start really thinking about it in a different, the different way, I think it's very easy for somebody to kind of implement this new train of thought. So I, at Seattle, I was going to basically give that speech to every single doctor who would listen and hopefully make some impact. And I don't want to ask you to speculate, but do you have an idea for why the U.S. is farther behind other countries when it pertains to this type of thing? I know you, since we're already talking about ACOG, I thought I'd go down this path a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think ACOG is a big part of the problem. Um, I, I gave an example when I gave Grand Rounds two months ago that things like listeria, where in 2014, we had like 25 cases in the US, or things like Zika virus, where, you know, in 2017, there were, I think, I don't remember for sure, it was like 27 cases, a very small amount. And Yet the ACOG gave us guidelines on managing Zika and the ACOG gave us guidelines on listeria and they give us guidelines on toxoplasmosis. So these things that are very much less common to happen, we get this guidance on. And I remember when I came back from the conference, I kind of quickly was like, okay, what does ACOG tell us about this? And they really do nothing. And I think that is the biggest reason why change hasn't happened. And I truly believe that if Star Legacy and we can convince ACOG to make a bulletin about the management of decreased fetal movement and we convince them to make a bulletin about the management of decreased fetal movement. I would be so surprised if we don't see our stillbirth rate go down because it really is not that complicated. It just, you have to retrain people how to think about it. Well, that is a powerful statement right there. How long have you been a practicing OB for? Uh, I graduated from my residency in 2008, so 12 years I've been out of residency and then, you know, graduated from medical school in 2004, um, so a long time. And you mentioned so. earlier that you've had some experience working with families who have experienced loss, and I'm wondering just what the evolution of your story has been uh, from graduating in 2008 to actually experiencing some loss to um, now look at you now. Uh, you're an advocate. <laughs> Um, can you just yeah. kind of talk about that journey of uh, working with families who have um, uh, experienced loss and how that has opened your mind over the years? So, you know, it's very interesting because I I had um, infertility my third year of residency and I was blessed with actually having 35-week triplets. And I thought that my kind of empathy for people going through this was somehow emanating from that, from being grateful and blessed to have three babies healthy at once. And why do I get three healthy babies when other people can't have one? And I, but actually, as I've started kind of thinking more about this, it actually started long before that. Um, I delivered my first loss patient as a third year medical student. And I think my um, chief resident who saw something in me back then knew I could handle it. And it was actually um, a twin um, loss um, and a live second baby. And I, I was very comfortable with it. And, and not in a like, I just was able to always get into the grief that somebody was feeling and not feel overwhelmed by it and kind of take it in and be able to just kind of 
be there for those families. I kind of just always knew the right thing to say, even as a med student. And then I had my first term loss as a resident, as an intern. And I remember this incredibly profoundly. His name is Jude. And I went to the funeral because I thought that was what you did when you were the person who delivered a deceased, you know, baby. And I remember looking around and wondering where my attendings were for that for that funeral. And I was like, why is nobody else here? Isn't that what we're supposed to do when this happens? And I remember just being very profoundly affected by that. And I learned a lot at that funeral about what Jude's father had to say about what it meant to lose a baby. He talked about, you know, that Jude was not going to bake cookies with his grandmother and he wasn't going to ride down the slide with his cousins. And he kind of did this beautiful speech about it. And I think that really just very early on in my career kind of solidified it for me. Um, and then it kind of just evolved from there. So, you know, I was very involved in my residency with loss, but once I was in private practice, I was really able to practice care the way I wanted to. And I, as I said, I've always been very involved since I was out in practice. And most of what I do is just kind of treat patients in a way that I don't think other providers do. I think I say to my, I do a lot of teaching. Um, we've probably done 10 teaching sessions now all over Rochester. And I go with my bereaved moms and I always tell my students the right thing to do with a patient who's lost a baby is the exact opposite of what you think it should be. So I teach them that you should get the same involvement that you would if this baby is going to be born healthy and you should come and I kind of guide them through the entire process. And it turns everything they've been thinking around upside down because the culture is so much for the doctor to not get involved and to give them their privacy and space. And I kind of throw that upside down, which I really enjoy. But I know some of that is also, I'm very comfortable in it. I'm very comfortable with greeting a deceased baby and welcoming it into the world the same way I welcome a healthy baby. And I don't expect everybody to kind of have that comfort, but that's kind of what brought me to Star Legacy in the first place and to be involved was I wanted to learn more how to be even better at taking care of people who lost babies and prevention was not even on my mind. So what's next for you? <laughs> I know that's a broad question. Yeah. Um, my Well, I think, you know, kind of alluding to the pushbacks and challenges, I think locally getting high-risk OBs to listen to me is very hard. Um, they don't believe in data that's not United States data, that's not randomized control trials. I don't think they want to believe that they're not doing it right either. Um, so I've been working really hard to try to convince my colleagues to kind of pay attention to this. And sadly, with the coronavirus, I had finally kind of, I think, started to make a bridge there. And I'd gotten one of the high-risk OBs to come to our local conference. And I felt like I was starting to just be like, you guys, we have to take this more seriously. And then this happened. And obviously, I politely, politely kind of stepped back because I knew they had more pressing issues. And I want to kind of continue on that. But really, my ultimate goal is to get that practice bulletin in ACOG because I really think once that practice bulletin is there addressing fetal movement and educating better about this and explain to people better on how to um, address this concern, I really think we're going to see our stillbirth rate fall. So that's my ultimate goal. Well, Heather, your story is a case study for why the Stillbirth Summit exists. And thank you for having an open mind and for your your willingness to change the way you approach your profession, your willingness to speak out about it to anyone who will listen. 
all for the sake of uh, saving babies' lives. So thank you for sharing your story with me. Thanks for all that you do, and thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Oh, it was a pleasure. I'm so glad that this can continue even in the current world that we're living in. So I'm very grateful. That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. I'm Chris Duffy. Thanks for listening.